you now have more of a buy-in from the business to actually effectively address that control rather than the IT teams or security teams trying to tell the business they need to change their business process. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Russell, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Like, how are things going? I mean, I've I've known you for a while and I definitely want to get you on the show for a while. So it's great to have you here today. But like, yeah, how's everything going since, you know, we last saw each other? I think it was that, was that Google event or I can't even remember now. Yeah, no, it has. It's been a while. I'd say almost two years, if not a little bit more. Um, But yeah, it's been very busy. It's been quite good in the sense of, you know, both work and life. Had uh, a bit of fun around the the recent floodings. Uh, (laughs) But other than that, everything's been pretty pretty good. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's different now, like with... I guess with the whole COVID thing, I do feel, I mean, even in my role, in my capacity, I do feel somewhat isolated because we're just not doing as many conferences anymore or as many face-to-faces. I hope that sort of changes, but yeah, you do still feel there's that distance with people. A hundred percent. I went to recently, um, I went to one of the first conferences I have in more than two years and just having that connection again with People in the industry just getting out and about it just brings that dynamic back to you know what we all love and you know being able to bounce ideas off each other. Some of the challenges people have been facing, some of the good innovations, and you know what people have been doing to overcome some of the challenges over the past couple of years. It was really great to to see everyone. Yeah, you're so true. I'm keen to get in some of the challenges that you faced recently and how you've overcome some of those. But before we sort of dive into that, I'm really keen to hear about your story, your journey, because uh, I know you've obviously come from a military background. Uh, now you're sort of transitioned to what you're doing today. I'm keen to understand how that went, but also keen. I, I've had a lot of ex-military people here on the show, and I've always asked them, like, is there a lot of crossover between what you were doing in the military to what you're doing in your sort of everyday job? Like, what are some of the key lessons? So, yeah, over to you, keen, keen to hear what you have to say. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, when, when you look at my history and my involvement in technology, it's kind of hard to actually do it without a little bit of a history lesson, lesson as well. So I really grew up, you know, I was very fortunate with the evolution of technology, you know, from a very young age where my parents actually were able to get hold of the old Commodore 64. You may have uh, remembered them old systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually started programming on them when I was, you know, before I was even a teenager. Um, so my interest was peaked very early on. And throughout growing up, I was through that entire evolution through, you know, the consoles coming out, technology evolving. I was even, you know, on the old bulletin board systems before the internet was fully rolled out in the, in the nineties. Um, and then as things were progressing, I actually was dabbling in cybersecurity and IT 
at a very young age. I remember some of the very first releases of, you know, tools such as Cane Enable, um, you know, overcoming some challenges that I had back in the time when, you know, I had games on CDs and one of the challenges was I would always scratch my CDs. Um, so working out how I could actually still play my games, but if I damage my CD, how can I do that? Um, so I was working all these challenges out myself, you know, as I was growing up until, you know, when I was 17, it evolved into me joining the military. And from there... Scratching of CDs, was <laughs> That is that is so I remember that. Like and you'd get a CD that you'd have to spend like thirty bucks on and it'd be like one song because it's like the main singer and then all these sort of ensue songs that are on there that no one cared about anyway, and then you'd scratch it and then that was the end of it. Yeah, hundred percent. And you had that with all oh, of the games. I forgot like, about that. Yeah. Oh the games as well. I remember N sixty four, like it yep. didn't work, so you had to like get the dust out. That would be like a thirty minute <laughs> endeavor. The old uh, blow on the cartridge technique. Oh, far out. Like you've really just brought back those like stressful anxiety-related memories. Exactly. So it, it's amazing like, how we've gone through technology, how we've evolved and really embraced everything. So even back in the days there, like as we were talking about, scratches on games, um, a lot of the time some of the protection we had was, okay, it was a simple batch file where you could change some lines of code and, you can bypass your CD altogether. Um, so you no longer needed that. So there was quite a bit of elevation there and, you know, understanding around technology. And as I mentioned, yeah, joined the military. And at this stage, I had already a number of years within the field. Um, and while I was in there, you know, I spent a good eight years in the military and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Um it taught me so much about independent, looking at solutions and problems from more of a strategic, detached standpoint, so you're able to see the full picture. Uh, and and from mm, yeah, exactly. So from there, when I you know come across any complex problems, really being able to detach yourself, take that that breather, okay, and see, okay, what are all the little bits and pieces that you need to address in order to overcome this complex situation. And, and these are some of the things that help me to really understand, okay, how I'm dealing with stress, you know, really internally reflect on a lot of that and have that ability to use my innovative, you know, ability to really try different things to solve a problem. Um, and these were some of the tools that the military gave me. While I was in there, was, you know, I, I joined back in the early, you know, what, 98, I joined the military. Um, and I spent a good eight years there. While I was in there, I started off, you know, in artillery, you know, communications. Yeah, so we were working quite a lot with radio frequencies and uh, UHF, VHF, encryption, all of that. And while I was there, we had a bit of a, you know, challenge and I saw a need for... A little bit of innovation and I did quite a bit of work on really developing some battlefield technology that really helped us gain a little bit of an advantage and while we were doing that you know I went through did a lot of work in producing this and we ended up getting it to a stage that we rolled it out and I was awarded accommodation and everything for my 
input and my work involved with that. And that really took me further into IT and security and how everything can piece together to really solve these complex problems and leverage technology to a desired outcome. So spent time in the military, spent a lot of time in Core Signals, working again with all these different types of technology where you just wouldn't get that exposure um, in many other places. So, you know, you would be there, you know, in, I'm talking like early early 2000s where you had the capability of rolling into an area that had nothing and then within a couple of hours you had a full wide area network set up. You had satellite communications up and running. Um, and so, you know, being part of that was quite a, an amazing part of my career. Then from there, obviously, one of the hardest bits, um, and you've probably heard this from a lot of people you spoke to that have been in the military, transitioning out is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have. One of the biggest challenges, and I had to be very strategic on how I transitioned because I had a lot of friends that had spent quite a lot of time in the military. They went out and being able to articulate the the skills and all the different bits of technology and everything that you worked on in, in the military, translating that into when you're going for a job interview, being able to have the private sector really understand what value you're bringing to the organization from the levels of exposure that majority of people haven't had. And you know, you've got kids that are 18 that are coming through responsible for multi-million dollar systems. These are quite amazing things at such an age to be exposed to that you're bringing that value into an organization where you can understand and you've had that responsibility already. One of the big things for me was, okay, how can I, one, transition out of the military that I'm still going to have a level of, if we have a look at hierarchy, you know, so I'm, I've been quite used to over that time being within an environment where it is quite structured, but also transition out. So I've still got structure, but I do have flexibility and I don't have that desire or that need to go back into my safety net, which is what I've known for so many years. So I left Australia. Um, okay, I wasn't <laughs> expecting you to say that part, but I get that. <laughs> so it was one of the things where I went and worked in the cruise industry uh, for a number oh, of years. Wow, the Ruby Princess or? Yeah, so I actually, because, you know, as I was getting towards the end of my military career, I was a qualified personal trainer. I was running a successful business out into, um, out in the Suffolk Shire area. Um, and then I ended up, you know, being awarded a contract working as a fitness director for a company that was contracted on cruise liners. Oh, wow. That's so random. Yeah. And, cool. I, and it was one of the things that was strategic for me for the simple fact that on a cruise ship, you've got structure. Okay. You've got, you've got hierarchy, but at the same time, I was far away from my comfort zone of what I'd been used to for eight years prior and that support network that I had within the military, that it would be hard for me to just want to jump back into it. Yeah, so I forced myself really to do that transition out, but still stay within there. So 
I continued that for a little while and still being in touch with IT and security and keeping up with technology while I was, while I was doing that. And then, you know, I did that for a number of years, you know, working as a fitness director and then, you know, also had um, a, a bit of an opportunity cruise liners setting up different, um, you know, business management level uh, challenges. You know, so taking all of this and working with, again, all the underlying IT infrastructure that you would need to be able to be successfully running business on a global scale. So understanding the limitations you have with the technology you have, especially when you're out in the ocean. You know, so understanding all of that, working on that until I eventually, you know, came back to Australia for a number of years and then left and worked in China. China was an amazing place uh, for me to work. It was taught me so much in the cultural aspect, understanding for myself leadership experience for how to understand and change my management styles based on where I'm communicating with teams around the world. You know, having that ability to understand what the complexities are within the technology space within the different areas of operation that we're working in as well. So having that experience working in the entertainment industry, working with operation technologies, um, you know, multinational organizations, working in within the casino industry, um, spent a number of years in Macau working in the entertainment industry, which was part of the casinos um, over there as well. And then Spent a bit of time with an organization you may have heard of called With You With Me. Yes, I do. I do know those guys. Yes. Yeah, so- I actually interviewed one of the guys, um, Thomas Mearnot, uh, a while back, actually, maybe like two or so years ago. Yeah, um, amazing organization. Their, their mission is really to solve this problem that I mentioned earlier about the challenges service personnel have when transitioning out of the military into civilian workforce. So I spent a bit of time there, um, you know, working alongside, you know, some really talented people in developing course content uh, that was relevant to the industry today and bringing a lot of the skills that I had actually gained overseas working with bleeding edge technology within casino environments and everything and all the learnings I've had from working globally back into teaching these you know military veterans giving them a heads up and a, a bit of a lead into transitioning into uh, into the workforce so that was a very rewarding experience and I left there and now I am actually at city of Newcastle um, as the Chief Information Security Officer looking after the digital and information security for the city of Newcastle. Um, so really rewarding role. Been there for two years now. I'm also sitting on the, I'm a chartered member of the uh, Vigitarist uh, Global Advisory Board as well, where we work with various law enforcements around the world, helping to really inform on uh, policy, how it impacts information security around business, as well as I said on um, non-for-profit boards as well. So in a big sort of history of technology and my uh, roundabout uh, experiences, that's from where I started 
to where I am now looking after the uh, security for the city of Newcastle. That's awesome. I love you. I love your journey. I love your experiences. I mean, look, I've interviewed oh, well over 100 people now just doing this and everyone, because of their experiences, their backgrounds, like military, non-military, whatever it is, corporate, it's helped them shape their thoughts, their beliefs, their their opinions on security. And I guess that's the main thing that drives us to combat cybercrime because not everyone is cut from the same cloth. Not everyone has the same pedigree. So I always want to talk about that because, again, it's where someone started to where someone is now and perhaps people listening can be like, oh, well, you know, I don't need to become an engineer and then work my way up. Maybe you can come through another avenue. It's exactly what I did. So I think that, yeah, always like to hear everyone's thoughts and their journey because, you know, we don't expect to have these people working in security that haven't come from that traditional background. So I really appreciate that. So I want to talk to you about something. Yeah, certainly. And it's cost optimization because, I mean, look, when you're running things at your level, it's always about we've got to save costs and reducing costs and all that. But I'm really keen to see like how you've managed to do this because sometimes when you're working in a company and it's not your money, you probably don't really care as much. But when it's your own bank account, it's your own money, your own company or whatever it is, you probably care a bit more. So I'm really keen to understand how this has gone for you. Like you can start from wherever, but I think this is a big one. Uh, and, you know, people are cost sensitive in the market when they're talking to a, a vendor or a supplier, whatever it is. This is a this is a big question that people usually it potentially could go here or there depending on how much something's going to cost, right? Oh, 100%. And when you when you speak to majority of security teams, you'll ask them, okay, what's one of the biggest comments say, that you receive when trying to pull forward a project uh, or trying to get traction into running any type of security initiative? And you know, most of the responses you'll get are oh, cybersecurity. It's too expensive. Um, yeah, we can't afford to do all of that. So it's a very interesting topic. Um, and it's something that I would almost put, well, I would, I, I believe it really comes down to maturity. And when I talk about maturity, it is, it requires a fundamental shift in how security teams are perceived within a business, within an organization. When you look at information security, cybersecurity, you know, these are people that are specializing in risks around digital technology. And you're hard pressed to find an organization these days that is not impacted or does not have technology touch points anywhere. Mm. Yeah, 100%. Uh, so an organization and information security teams, security teams really are advisors to the business so when i what i mean by that is they have their fingers on the pulse they understand what the threat landscapes are they are studying you know they understand what the compliance requirements are they understand what legislative requirements are they understand okay from a technology standpoint what's happening out there where the threat actors are what uh, techniques they're using so to bring this into a context of cost optimization, you look at, okay, 
how do we support the business in achieving their objectives from a risk perspective? Because the underlying you know, things that drive an organization, the organization needs to one, be profitable, as you can imagine. And they need to have the ability to innovate. So if you put in the customer first, you're having that ability to go through. And where we have had a lot of challenges in the past, especially with in cybersecurity, it is easy to get a reputation of being the nose. Okay, we're saying, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Yep, familiar. Yeah, exactly. So when you having, when you change this shift in mindset, into okay the security teams they don't own any risk in the organization the business units and the business own the risks but your information security teams and your cyber security teams they advise the business on the mitigated controls to enable them to deliver the value to the customer so when you start to look at it that way now the security teams are taking on more of a advisory capacity looking at the risk management of the organization so when you look at risk and cost optimization you are now looking at okay what are the business processes that are potentially costing overhead that are not allowing this business unit to solve their problem that they're trying to deliver value to the customer you're looking at potentially have we what's our asset life cycle like for our infrastructure have we got technology in place that is overspecced are we utilizing it correctly do we understand what our infrastructure looks like that it's optimized so we're not spending money trying to protect everything instead of just protecting what is absolutely necessities for the organization to be operational and to meet the risk appetite of the organization. I just want to interrupt there for a second. So when you say protecting things that are absolutely necessary, necessity, I agree. What would be the mindset behind someone saying, all right, we're going to protect every single thing? What, like, why do people think like that? Well, it, it comes down to... A lot of it's culture and also education, you know, and asking the hard questions, you know. So when you look at maturity in an organization, one big question is, okay, who actually owns the data? Is it, if you're looking at employee data, does IT own that data or does your people and culture team own that data? And then no one can usually answer that question. Exactly. So when you're starting to really unravel this and then look at, okay, how critical is that information to the organization? Are there any legislative requirements that are part of that that needs to be secure? And then put a classification next to it. Okay, is this actually a critical piece of data and information for the organization that needs to be sensitive? If so, yes then have that also separated down into your asset classification so if you start to then ask them questions and getting them getting the buy-in from the organization that okay 
if there is a sensitive bit of information that has a control that is administrative, and this is why I come back to the risk should not be owned by security teams, because if the business owns the risk around now that piece of information, but that mitigating control is actually an administrative control in a business process change, you now have more of a bind from the business to actually effectively address that control rather than the IT teams or security teams trying to tell the business they need to change their business process. Do you think it's just easier for people to sit there and say, let's just protect everything versus, all right, well, let's go and do a deep dive. Let's go and do an audit. Let's get everyone out there. Let's go and trawl through everything in our company to find what's necessity. Do you think it's just easier to just go, okay, well, it's going to cost us an extra half a million bucks for arbitrary numbers to to protect everything. It's just a lot easier if we do that because I'm struggling to get my head above the water. Do you think that is a mindset people have? Oh, definitely. And and that's where it also comes down to that, that maturity as well. It's information security and, you know, cybersecurity in general, it's a journey for any organization. Um, And, you know, doing that shotgun approach can only last for so long because that then in itself will create a lot of additional challenges for the organization. So it will begin to snowball. And and that's where it comes back to asking them essentially that the hard questions, because if we take that shotgun approach and just say, okay, let's protect everything. You're essentially not protecting anything. You're going to overspend in areas and you're going to blow out your budget dramatically. And that also comes down to, you know, burnout within the security teams and your IT teams. Frustration within the organization because you can't innovate as quick because you are outside your risk appetite of the organization. Um, you know, so you've got all of these other layers that will continually build when you say, okay, we really need to look at our maturity and how we're managing our information and how we're managing our assets and our technology within the organization. We know, yes, okay, it's not going to happen overnight. But if we begin to work on this and start to bring our control and understanding and insight into what we're running in the environments to, okay, if we, for example, segment all this sensitive data over here, but we've got a part of the business that wants to really push this innovation piece around this public classification, for example, that doesn't need as much security or overhead you've got a lot more flexibility to be, you know, take on more innovation, trial new innovations and really push the boundaries to try and get that maximum value out for their customer while at the same time not over-exceeding what the risk appetite of the organisation is. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned when we spoke investing in the right areas in security. So I'm keen to understand what you mean by that. Now, it depends on who you speak to, People are going to say, oh, more firewalls, oh, more this, more GRC, more consultants, more external consultants. So what do you mean specifically when you say this? And then my follow-up question to that would be, where do people in your experience typically overspend? Yep, and, and that, that is definitely one thing that is a challenge for many organisations. So... For me, looking at that, and it links back to that maturity piece and really understanding your 
asset classifications, information classifications, requirements. And I'll use an example of PCI DSS, so the payment card industry requirements. If you've got that within your organization, you want to de-scope that as much as possible. So if you're looking at you know, having all the requirements in a small subset, you can actually reduce the amount of controls that you need to invest there. So you're reducing costs that way. When you're looking at your organization as a whole, you need to really ha understand the infrastructure. If you're looking for cost optimization, especially around that firewall piece, as you mentioned, you know, what's the setup? Are you really using the capacity that you need? So you really need to start to correlate and understand the, the metrics that you've actually got on that infrastructure. So how much of the compute or how much of the utilization of these devices are you using on a daily basis and start to leverage that data to make informed, intelligent decisions on how you're investing into them life cycles of that infrastructure. So yeah, in essence, so when you're looking at that, understanding what the makeup and the structure of your organization is, making sure that you're ticking the boxes of any regulatory or compliance requirements, then making them hard decisions. Okay, what are the operational necessities that would then fall into a different classification? And from there, you can start to work with you know work with your cios work with your enterprise architects to say okay truly are we fit for purpose in this area or are we actually overspending and when it comes to information security cybersecurity, there's a lot of products out there and that and this is where it becomes a challenge so, so how do you know if you're overspending? Like if your your budget's, I don't know, 500K and you've gone to 600, that's obvious you've overspent. But is there any sort of key indicators that you would look for to be like, ooh, I've overspent there? Yeah, and this is where it comes down to, okay, if you're, you know, one example might be you've got some firewalls in place for for the organisation. Getting some metrics on that, on how much of the utilization and how much of the functions are actually being used on that particular purchase, measuring that over a period of time, and then asking that question, okay, is this actually too powerful for the traffic or the data flow that we're actually sending through? Yeah, and yeah, if yeah, the answer yeah. is yes, again, bring that back and say, okay, let's look at downsizing that to ensure one, we're not over inspecting on yearly subscriptions for particular firewalls or anything like that. Is the information that's being protected from that particular firewall, you know, you know, hypothetically, does it require all of the assets within there? And it comes down to, again, if you've got the asset classifications, optimizing your networks or your infrastructure. So example, if you've got a highly powerful firewall that is protecting public information and public accessible, that doesn't really require a the same amount of security that potentially sensitive information, ask that question, do they both need the same firewall? And then start to continually improve 
as you're involving because technology is continually changing and you're finding there's more and more options out there that are potentially less expensive, but they keep you within the appetite and meeting the functional requirements that the organization needs, giving you that opportunity to reduce the cost. So going back to my question, where do you think people typically overspend though? Because you are right, there are lots of products, you could get it cheaper elsewhere, but is there like a rule of thumb that you've just sort of seen that people just go, oh, we'll just lump a whole bunch of money into that that area? There's a number of things and, you know, for example, depends on what's happening in the industry. I do see quite a lot where people say, we'll chuck everything into the cloud, for example. Now, the question would be, is that really the right option for the organization and does it suit what you're trying to actually move in there? So when you're coming up with the strategy of moving into the cloud, okay, is the cloud really the best place for your critical infrastructure to be moved to? Are people not asking these questions though? I, I, I do come across it where, you know, there is a lot of time people would want to just go with, okay, where we think the industry is going, but not taking that step back. Because you will get a lot of questions from, you know, the boards and different arenas where it's like, okay, how come you're not going to declare? Why aren't we using this? Because it is popular within the media, the press. And everyone else is doing it. Exactly. So it's really making them informed decisions. I'm really drilling, drilling down into, is it really the best move and the long-term solution for the organization? And again, this comes back to you know, being that advisor and understanding that risk. If we do that, what is the actual long-term risk to the organization? You know, so if we do a full jump into the cloud, at what point do we make a decision that maybe that's not the best move and what's our rollback strategies? Uh, so you will see a lot of these great new products coming into the market, you know, all these, you know, same solutions coming out. You've got so many, you know, cybersecurity vendors, threat intelligence coming out uh, that as information security is becoming more and more part of the business makeup you're you're being you're seeing the market flooded you know with all these different solutions and quite a lot of them are great and it's really understanding what is the value that they're actually giving your organization when you're going out and just purchasing this are you purchasing to solve the problem and to ensure that the organization's meeting the appetite for their risk or are you doing it because, you know, you saw it on the Gartner Quadrant or, you know, that's being talked about within the community. So you just want to get it for yourself. So on that note, uh, yes, of course, there's a flooded market. There's so many products and services are there, out there that are, a lot of them are quite good. But would you say that perhaps as an industry, we are paying for products and services that we don't really need because, I don't know, someone's mate that they go play basketball with on the weekend, bought that product, makes sense that you're going to buy it. Everyone wants, you know, nothing draws a crowd like a crowd. People like to follow what the next guy's doing, especially in Australia. Is a lot of that that sort of happens in terms of mentality? I believe so. Uh, and the reason I say that is it, it's, 
widely known that we do have a skill shortage across the industry. So when we have skill shortages within the industry, we look for how we can manage that risk. And if we're seeing a product that is promising to solve that problem, we will go out and buy it. And then, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't live up to the promise. And then we're left with technology and multi-year contracts that are not really serving the purpose. And we're still left with that same issue of developing our people. Mm. Can you define promising? Like what do people often say that you're like, oh, that's promising. And then it is a bit of a letdown, which happens. But is there any, again, key indicators that would allude to a product is promising? So if we, if we use threat intelligence, that, that's a hot one at the market uh, like at the moment. There's and quite a lot of organizations now are providing threat intelligence. And you know, there's a difference between an organization providing you with raw data that they've been able to scrape off the dark web versus threat intelligence that is actionable to your organization. That is some of the questions you really need to be asking when talking with these specific vendors is understanding, okay, is this a generic solution or is this going to specifically help my organization and my teams to reduce the management overhead, but also give us that competitive advantage to really address a lot of the threat landscape. What, um, mm, you are right. It's a great question. So have you ever, so hypothetically, have you ever asked someone who's in threat intelligence, hey, did you scrape this from the dark web or is this actually actionable insights for me? Have you ever asked someone that? And if so, what was the response? Yeah, so it is one of my general questions that I do ask. Um, <laughs> I figured as such. Yeah. Because yeah. um, it's one of them things, okay, if this is, you know, actionable to my organization, what have you found? What is the likely impact for us? And how, how old is it? How old is this information? So when you have a look, there's a lot of open source uh, thread intel out there. You've got, you know, Alien Vault. Um, there's... Yeah, there's quite a number out there. So if they're just providing you the same intelligence that you can get from open source. That you can get yourself for free. Exactly. So it's just uh, a fancy UI UX. 100%. Uh, so then why would anyone buy that? Again, it comes down to that that skill set and that skill shortage, understanding the questions to ask. Um, and, you know, is it a compliance piece to tick the box? If so... Are they asking the right questions? Do they have that skill set? Are they, if they don't have that skill set, are they approaching you know consultants that specialise in it to aid them in you know for example a tender process or an evaluation process? How can they leverage additional skills that they may be lacking to ask them questions? But when we look now, I think a lot of it is knee-jerk reaction, especially with a lot of the news coverage. So we all know the increase in cyber attacks, especially within the last two years, the, the activity 
So do you think people like running out as we did with COVID, like buying of the toilet paper? We'll like we'll just we'll just get whatever we can. <laughs> Whatever's there, we'll buy it, we'll take it, and we'll take it from everyone else. Is that sort of what's happening a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I would say with everything, you want to feel that you are doing something to you know, protect yourself. Yeah, um, I get that. So it's like an assurance piece. Yes, exactly. So and then what you need to do if you have brought something on, asking them questions, but again, never stop evaluating it. Mm. So how, so I like that as well. So as a rule of thumb, you've obviously, like you said, technology's change or your business requirements change. You know, sometimes things could be left there that no one's been using for like seven years and you're still paying for it. How often should you sort of do this exercise from, from what you're doing in your day job, and what you've done before, which has made a big impact to your organisation in terms of how much money you've saved. Yeah, for, for me, it's continuous improvement. You know, you should always be looking with technology, with every everything you do in film business, you want to continually look for areas where you can improve your offering and your support to the organisation. So when you look at that, okay, you're understanding the business. You're out there every day talking to your business partners. You're talking to the people in the business, understanding what challenges they're facing. Because from there, you can advise back of what potential options are to improve a process, where some of the bottlenecks are, um, some of the technology improvements that are coming available on the market, which as a security team, 90% of the time, the guys are already researching it and they're understanding the limitations within these products. Yeah, so to be able to do that, I see that as a daily thing to be able to continually improve the whole risk profile of the organization because we are doing it as security. We're continually monitoring the threat landscape and this is not just from external threats. We've got to look internal threats, okay? Legacy systems, legacy processes how we onboard people. So this is where, again, linking back to that fundamental shift in how we see security teams within an organization because they understand, okay, what are these potential risks and what are some of the things we can do to you know, reduce complexity? And if you reduce complexity, less things can go wrong. Yeah, no, that's so true. I think that, yeah, it starts with that mindset continuously looking as well like I don't know I mean do you think people are looking at other products perhaps that is a better solution it may not even necessarily be cheaper it may be the same price do you think people are doing that though regularly or regularly enough that it makes sense that they should jump ship to another one because it it like it makes sense for them do you think people are doing that as often as they should it's a balance uh, and it can be a challenge. You know, many, as you know, many security teams out there are—they're doing it tough. Uh, the workload is considerable, and many teams are understaffed uh, due to you know, our skill shortage. Being able to train people to really understand what they're looking at. You know, so, yes, I believe it would be happening quite frequently. However, can we do better? Always. We can always do better. Yeah, true. True. So 
switching gears for a moment, what do you believe some of the advantages that you've gained as a direct result of doing the cost reduction exercise? I mean, everything you've gone through today makes perfect sense, right? Love it. It's great place to start for people perhaps that are listening that are like, oh my gosh, I need to start asking that question first. I need to ask these vendors that question so I'm not purchasing a product potentially I don't need. So can you talk through some of some of the wins that you've had as a result of doing this exercise as regularly as you are doing it currently? Yeah, definitely. So when you look at starting to improve the material and starting to understand these little building blocks from a enterprise and business standpoint rather than a IT issue, what you begin to see and some of the things that you know I've really been able to see across different organizations over the years is it allows you to one free up capital to invest in other areas and really you know have that innovation product, have that innovation bucket to take that additional risk to support the organization in trying to get that competitive advantage. At the same time, because you're having them conversations within, you know, whether it is, uh, you know, to your board of directors, your leadership, you're now talking in terms that they understand. You're not talking technical talk. You're talking in terms of risk, financial impact to the organization as well as opportunities for further innovation and potential for revenue creation. So by allowing and shifting gears by optimizing cost and getting your risk appetite for the organization to where they're happily accepted it, it gives them a bit more freedom to be empowered to push forward a little bit quicker, you know, take on additional risk. But if we relate that to the last couple of years, imagine how much it may have made a difference in pivoting to now remote workforce. Yeah, so if an organization was already within their appetite or at the time, if the organization, their risk rating for information, cybersecurity, IT, et cetera, was already well outside their appetite, imagine how much exposure they had then had to create due to the global pandemic. Mm, Yeah, those are great points. So for someone that is taking your feedback, makes sense, they've gone through this exercise, in your experience, if, if someone were to do this, what would be sort of the, or how might a board or executive sort of respond to someone perhaps that have gone and done these exercises and have said, oh, we can save a whole bunch of money here because I've gone and asked these very fundamental questions. Like, can you share some insight perhaps as to what the response may be? I'd be very surprised if anyone goes to the board, to any board or anything and tells them they can save them money through, um, cost optimization they've got a plan and present that that a board would not be happy you know when you look at you know governing an organization you want to make sure that you're not overexposing the organization to any type of risk and that might be legislative risk it might be cyber risk whatever so if you're then presenting to these governing bodies with 
solutions to problems that you've identified that is in line with one, bring the organization into their appetite, but also optimizing spend that allows them to free up capital to spend in other areas. That's very advantageous for the organization. And I would be very hard pressed to find anyone that would not be happy with that and would not get support in running them initiatives. So I ask that because just so hypothetically, I mean, you're the board director and I come to you and say, hey, Russell, I'm going to do this cost optimization exercise, but you've sort of got to figure in your mind. And I come back to you after like three months and say, okay, this is how much we've saved. Do you think it's possible that potentially an executive or board could turn around to say, you've just spent three months and you've literally saved like $7,000. Do you think perhaps there's a figure in their mind that they're going to save like $200,000 a year or something like that? And maybe the figure that, perhaps someone's come internally with doesn't marry up to the figure they had in their head, perhaps? Is there sort of a level that you need to give education? Yes, I'm going to do this. I may not find anywhere where we can squeeze anymore. I may, but it may not be as much as you think it is. So it's about that level of framing that conversation correctly because at the end of the day, every board wants everyone to save money, but perhaps they have a, a figure in their mind which may potentially cause consternation because it's like well actually you didn't save as much money the three months when you've been going your recon work and you've only saved x amount so how do you how do you handle that conversation yeah definitely and this is where it is really being upfront and doing that planning before you actually have that conversation like if you're going to present to the board you really need to have all your ducks in a row you need to understand what you're going to be doing and marry that back to what are you trying to achieve? Are you actually trying to, is the focus of this project you're going to lead right now to identify opportunities for reduction? Or are you running this project now to reduce our risk rating down to meet our appetite and some potential Outcomes of that may be the identification that we can reduce cost in certain areas. If you had done that recon prior to actually having that conversation and you've already identified some quick wins, yeah, 100%, bring that to the table with that. So it, you really need to make sure you've done your due diligence before presenting anything to, to the board or to any type of organisation leader. Do you think people do it prematurely though? Like, cause they have every intention to go, Oh, I'm going to go save some money. And then does it kind of work out that way or behave, perhaps they save five bucks and it doesn't really, doesn't live up to the expectation perhaps. Yeah. It, and a hundred percent. It's, it's one of those things that, okay, you have an idea, you've got something, you want to get the support from, you know, this executive sponsorship. You need to curb expectations, but you need to be very clear on what you're actually wanting out as an outcome. But also, you need to be able to measure exactly what you're doing and have a essentially your evacuation parachute. So at this milestone, if we have identified that this project is going to now blow out X amount of money, we're now going to come back to the board and then reassess and see if the board wants us to continue with the project or we take a step back or change it exactly 
you know, and refocus somewhere else. So you don't get, you know, six, seven, even eight months down the line, you've spent, you know, hypothetically $200,000 on a project that isn't actually going to be beneficial to the organization, you know, in either reducing their risk or reducing other costs. I hope not. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, you know I, I do firmly believe if, we, if you cannot measure anything, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, so it's sort of like measuring twice, cut once. Exactly. And that's been around for a very long time. For a good reason, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's one of the things that you really need to take on board. You know, what is the thing that you're trying to solve? So we link that back. Okay, we're looking for cost optimization. That's a financial risk. If we're overspending in certain areas, you now got an exposure of overspend to the organization. So if you're running a project that is looking to reduce overall risk of the organization or to keep it within the risk appetite, there's lots of different elements of risks that you are looking for and you're trying to reduce for the organization. And if it happens to be you come across an opportunity to reduce a financial impact, 100%, you know, put it forward. Love it, love it. Very, very, very good practical advice. And let's say people can take this away today and do something with it. So love your approach. It is very straight down the line because you are obviously ex-military, which is what everything is great about you. Um, and it's tangible things that people can do. So really appreciate the time today, Russell. And yeah, look forward to getting you back on the show. Thanks a lot. Excellent. Been a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.